If you walk through the great art galleries of cities like New York or London, or if you're lucky enough to have dinner with a billionaire in their apartment, you might catch a glimpse of the curious, colorful, and charismatic Pablo Picasso. For most of the 20th century, owning a Picasso was the very expression of wealth and power. Few people, however, know the backstory. Picasso's turbulent, sadistic relationships with the women he called his muses and the dramatic ups and downs of his long life. Today's episode of Blind History is about Pablo Picasso, who lived from 1881 to 1973. I didn't even realize he'd lived that long. Pablo Ruiz Picasso, and I'm giving you the shortened version, and we'll give you the longer one in just a minute. <laughs> That'll take up three quarters <laughs> yeah, of the exactly. podcast. <laughs> is probably the world's most famous artist. I mean, when you think of modern art, certainly, there is no one who comes close. There are some great figures in art history. I studied it at university. I loved it. I never really understood this guy, and that always, to me, either means that I haven't paid enough attention, but in this case, I really tried to, or he's so clever that I'll never understand him. And that's certainly the impression I got out of it. Yeah, and I think that you always said, I want people not to see, but to think when they see my paintings. Well, it's phenomenal that in all the episodes of Blind History, we usually focus on generals and leaders and politicians and people who've done military things or they've done political things or they've done things in culture or in society or whatever it might be, science even. But the artists are hugely important because the artists are the ones that hold the mirror up and give the rest of us a moment to reflect Agreed. on where humanity is. This guy had nine decades. He lived a long time. He lived a long time. He was very productive, although, you know, if you said that to him, he wouldn't, doesn't like that term, but he produced a lot well, I mean, he's regarded, I think when he died, they found something like 16,000 paintings in his studio. And obviously the majority of those were his, but he also collected other people's work. And that kind of prolific talent that can just create that much stuff is a once in a lifetime. And I also think the big thing with him is, you know, compared to his contemporaries, a lot of them found their talent or they became famous posthumously or mm -hmm. later in their life. Whereas he actually early on in his life, you know, with some of his paintings that he did when he was 13 and 15 years old, he was already showing it. And he sold his first painting at the age of 21 or 23. Amazing. It's just incredible that, I mean, and he was famous. He was properly, properly famous driving his own car, living in a chateau in his 30s. He made a lot of money. He was on you know, his death without a will when he passed away at 91. I think it was, it was just frightening. I think his worth it there was $250 million. And that excludes so many different Yeah, parts. they reckon with, this may be a good place to start, is that when Pablo Picasso died in that chateau in the French mountains, which he bought because that was apparently where uh, one of his favorite artists had painted before. When he died, they estimate that his estate must have been worth, with today's, you know, kind of adjusted for inflation rates and all the rest, over a billion dollars. Oh, a hundred percent of Phenomenal. For an artist, that was probably the first time an artist yeah. had ever been worth something while they lived and been worth that much exactly. while they lived. So yeah. even if you don't like his art, and many people are, you know, it's controversial, some of the cubist stuff that he did. There are huge differences of opinion between art critics mm -hmm. and art students and even other artists. But you can't argue with the money. Definitely not. 
prolific. Apart from being this incredible artist, which we've already referred to, he was also an absolutely fascinating human being. His life was by no means straightforward. His relationships were crazy. I think one of the women he loved in his life made it out alive. And the things even his granddaughter said about him posthumously will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. So let's get into Pablo Picasso. Where do we even start with this guy? Well, maybe with his name. (laughs) Here's the full name. All right, sit down, make sure you're sitting down, make sure you got a cup of tea. Here's Pablo Picasso's full name. So his full name was actually, and you do realize that I'm reading this, (laughs) was Pablo Diego Jose Francisco de Paolo Juan Nepomencino. Maria de los Remedios Cipriano de la Santísima Trinidad Marta Patricimo Clito Ruiz Ye Picasso. <laughs> and that came from relatives and saints. Yeah, and please forgive us any pronunciation mistakes yeah, no, was, there. I mean, whether it was Ant or me, one of us was going to screw that up. But, you know, the only thing longer than his name was the amount of women that he had. Yeah. And of course, the paintings he managed. That's true. And, and the sculptures. Remember, he was also a sculptor. He was also a stage designer. There were many things this guy yeah. achieved in his life. So he was born to a father who was very much an art professor, an art lecturer, a museum curator. He was born into a family of artists. The surname Picasso actually comes from his mother. And the name Pablo was his first name, but it was also Pablo Picasso that sounds so good that a bunch of friends in his twenties decided he needed to call himself that. He's always been a diminutive person. I think his height, fully grown, was five foot four. He was a uh, bit, bit small. And when he was born, they thought he was stillborn. Oh. And then one of his uncles blew smoke in his face, and then he had took a massive breath. So his uncle was the doctor. <clears throat> oh, his uncle was the doctor yeah. in that in the painting. In yeah. no, no, his, oh, uncle, his, uncle, his uncle was, was the actual there doctor. When, yeah, oh. delivered him. Oh, okay. Oh. No, I didn't know that. Oh. And. We talk a little bit about his early life. Uh, he was born on the coast and the sea made it, you know, played a big part, sort of being close to Africa, Africa and, the, and art in Africa later Absolutely. on in his life. But he was born on the coast in Spain, in Malaga. And first of all, the fact that he lived through two world wars and a, a civil war in his own country can't be easy for people that lived in that era. There was an earthquake, I think, when he was three or four, a massive earthquake. He saw death and devastation. So already death was in his head. His sister died of diphtheria. That really, really hurt him, seriously hurt him. So that was just early on in his life, you know, experienced these type of things. And it played a role in his art consistently right throughout his life. He was always, he had this, not battle, but with death. It was around death. He's supposed to have made a vow to God that if his sister, Concepcion was her name, but they called her Conchita, that if she would survive diphtheria, he would give up painting. And part of his motivation for being such a prolific artist was he was almost giving the middle finger to God for taking his sister away. I mean, it was a great deal for humanity because if Concepcion had lived and he'd never painted again, we'd be very much poorer. 100% right. So we've got to thank her for the sacrifice. There, but then he if... became a staunch atheist. Oh, yes. Uh, yes strong yes. Catholic family, and then he became an atheist. He did study art, and he studied under his father, and he learned to draw. And in the beginning, he didn't always have money. So he learned to work with less materials and to do really incredible things. He clearly had a phenomenal talent, and even his dad saw this. I mean, his first painting, which you can see, he did at age nine, and it's just incredible. Again, through the course of this podcast, you may want to look up 
some of the stuff that we're talking about. But far before the blue period, as they call it, he had already started painting some absolutely incredible stuff. And I think it's quite important in the context of this podcast to actually look at it because it just blows you away. It's actually quite hard to understand, but maybe some inclination of his incredible talent. And having said that as well, you couldn't go and like uh, <laughs> go to CNA or something and buy arts by numbers or, or how to paint. There were no art books in the late 1800s. There were no art materials. 100% right, yes. You had to learn to make the paints, which he was very good at too. And if you didn't travel and see other art and his major influences, people like El Greco and, you know, the other contemporary artists, which we'll get to in a minute. If he hadn't seen these in real life, there was no way for him to just Google it and mm. use it as inspiration. You had to see it. You had to yeah. travel there. You had to be in the gallery or the museum. And early on, which I think this is just uh, his learning years, he rejected the traditional way of painting and realism, as they call it. So in other words, mm. you paint something that looks like a mountain or it looks like a flower. So he was, you know, as he said, you need to think about my painting. Well, he, he certainly proved he could do the realism. I mean, he, he did a painting in 1896 called The First Communion, which is extraordinarily beautifully done. If you like classic art, that'll be, you won't believe it's a Picasso. So he knew he could do that. It was almost too mm. easy for him. Yeah. And after that, he started to be influenced by, you know, the Rossettis and the Toulouse-Lautrec and Edvard Munchs and those kinds of people. And then obviously he started to change the way that he created this work. And the first period was known as the Blue Period. And we're going to concentrate quite a lot on his art. And you'll have to look these up. But famously, you know, there are some of those works that are all the old guitarist, for example, is a good one to go and look up. Very much in just blues, blacks, and whites. Yeah. Kind of monochromatic. It was to make people think about the desolation and solitude and sadness. Well, of it these. was a spotlight on his soul because he, right yeah. then he was, he was going through proper serious depression. He felt that he, he wasn't there for his, his very close friend who committed suicide. That's right. And that's actually ignited the blue period is that, and it's, is that Casa Gemas? that's Casa Gemas. so he was very close to Casa Gemas. he was in Paris for a while mm -hmm. with Casa Gemas. they came back because Casa Gemas' girlfriend broke up with him so he was in a really bad way and then Picasso went back to his family and Casa Gemas went back and tried to kill his girlfriend yeah Borges. he tried to shoot her right? tried to shoot her yes oh. and then he, he shot himself so you look at some of those paintings from that time we talk about the blue period you know even one of them was Casagemos in a coffin. You could see the bullet hole in his 100%. head. hundred percent. And you can look at that picture as well. And it's, so it's, by the way, when you look at that painting, which you should go and look at, you should also see the candle and the different colors that he put coming out from around the candle. It's, it's extraordinary how, you know, before this kind of art, no one had done this. It had to resemble precisely what you would see with the human eye. Yeah. And it's almost like his eyes work differently than the rest of ours. You know, the women that he... Famously, and we'll get to those too, dated and married and had children with. Well, none of these were classically beautiful women, and they were all very different. He must have seen something in them that the rest of us just couldn't yeah, see. True. But if you look at his paintings, and you, you have to look at the eyes of the people he's painting at that time, and it might be outwardly a picture that might be happy, especially in the blue period, but then you look at the actual the babies crying hmm. or the mothers looking away. So all of those things, these massive meaning 
in the paintings. It's not just a, a painting of a, of a baby and the mom and, yeah. uh, you know, it's… There's something going on. There's something going on properly, yeah. So the next period was called the Rose Period. His life got a little bit better from about 1904 to 1906. Yeah, because then he started sticking everything that moved and I think he just got <laughs> happier and happier. <laughs> If you want to see a picture, a painting of, of kind of what the Rose period looked like, there's a very famous portrait of Gertrude Stein, which doesn't look like a human. It almost looks like a mask. And this is where his art starts to change quite a lot as well. So he's established himself. By this stage, he was quite famous. And he certainly had a reputation, mm. not only with the ladies, but among artists. His talent was, you know, it was undeniable. Yeah. He'd been to Madrid and studied at the Royal Academy. He was thinking of going to France. He'd spent some time in the mountains, kind of exploring nature and figuring out how he wanted to represent nature and looking at things differently. And that was a big thing for him. Huge. What he would do is he'd just walk the streets. And in this case, he'd walk in the countryside. And just that's where he got his material from mm. and his inspiration from. And that stuck with him. That time in the country was actually a very, very important period <laughs> in his life, shaping how he carried on in the future. Let's just talk about some of the women in his life at the, at the early stage. And, and we're talking early 20s now, so yeah, he's yeah. had a big laugh already. Right. Okay, so he, first of all, was married twice in his life, and he had four children by three different women. Dora Ma comes into it. We'll talk about her. There was a woman called Olga Koklova, mm. great name. Yeah. There was Francois Guillot, who was the only woman who managed to say no to him and escaped with mm. her life. We mentioned her earlier. And uh, obviously, his last constant companion was Dora Ma. And we'll start with the, the first woman in his life. There was this really interesting story about this woman who he, he seemed to have treated very, very badly. He locked her in their apartment, and he never gave her a key. And the only time he was decided... Was that Fernando? That was right in the beginning, Fernande. Yeah. <clears throat> Fernande. So this woman, again, not beautiful by today's standards. He painted many pictures of her. She was also his muse. Many of these women were. But he clearly had a bit of a sadistic streak, and he was terribly jealous of these women's affections. Yeah. So he locked her in the apartment, only gave her a key after she almost died in a fire in the apartment. And that, then I misunderstand the apartment's freezing cold because, you know, he's still building his wealth, so to speak. Yeah. He was quite poor. Freezing cold and uh, cigarette stubs, cobwebs. Hmm. So, it, it, you know, there must have been something extremely charismatic about him to keep or she was terrified. Or terrified, 100%. Yeah. So there was her, so Fernanda, and then she eventually, uh, I think she she killed herself. I, I'm not entirely sure what happened to her. I didn't go into too much of the detail there. So but she tried to keep him, and she so she brought a, and I mean, he's a young gastel, and yeah. she adopted a 13-year-old girl from orphanage. Then she found nude paintings of this 13-year-old that he had done. So then they had to take her back to the orphanage, but she still stayed with him. After that. So there's, there's definitely, um, you know, you had some issues, let's say. Well, he did say that women are machines for suffering, which is not a, a very nice thing. <laughs> for any, I mean, these days you'd be locked up for saying something yeah. like that, and rightly so. 100%. Um, but he also said there were two kinds of women, goddesses and doormats, and nothing in between. Yeah. It's a hell of a thing to say. I think that maybe this is where I'll mention that quote from his granddaughter, uh, Marina who said he submitted these women to his animal sexuality, tamed them, bewitched them, ingested them, and crushed them into his canvas. After he had spent many nights extracting their essence, once they were bled dry, he would dispose of mm. them. I mean, 
That's how his granddaughter spoke about him. You can imagine how these women felt about him in his worst moments. But that's just such a – it's descriptive. It's just spot on. I mean, it's that's quite scary. It's ex- exactly right. If you if you look at the way it went, you know, with all the, all the women in his life, they were a ghost of the people that they started with, you know, that, that set out with. So that's actually very, very sad. But one lady that made a massive difference in his life, and I don't believe, no, he was not in any relationship with her, was Gertrude Stein. Yeah, she was his patron for a while. Yes, and there's often talk that if it wasn't for her, he wouldn't have been as famous as he was. She bought massive amounts of Picassos. Yeah. She was ridiculously rich. Yeah. And that was quite early in his life that she started buying his paintings. And suddenly the paintings he couldn't sell, she bought up. And it just put him in a different league. I think she really, really made a big difference. And they were good friends for many, many years. Just as a side note for those people who don't want to go and do a whole research article on Gertrude Stein, just poet, play, playwright, art collector. Uh, she was American and she wrote some really famous works and hosted a Paris salon, which was very famous among the artists and the, and the writers of the time. So she was kind of one of those central tent pegs of the art world around yes. which everyone else spun. And every week she had functions at the salon and he didn't enjoy a massive amount of people and mm. but he made sure every week he went mm. so you know it was it was a lot of ambition <laughs> and drive right in old picasso as well i mentioned this francois guillot who's who wrote a book actually after she and picasso she was the one who left him and she did have children with him they survived to this day i think they're both alive but when she wrote this tell-all book about him and his ups and downs and his sadism and his craziness and the way he would work and all the rest of it, he was, first of all, very annoyed and angry, and he sued her. But ultimately, it ended up working for him because it painted this picture, if you'll pardon the use of those words, of a full human being. Mm. Instead of just being this genius painter who created all this amazing art, it also showed you the different qualities and characteristics Mm. and colors of his own Life and soul. You know, we often made him approachable, made him real. Yeah. So the typical romantic artist, eccentric, drank, oh, yeah. woman, yeah. and art. Prostitutes, Pro- gambling. All of, all of those things. Everything. So let's get to his two marriages. Okay. So first marriage. First marriage during the Great War. Yeah. He got together with Cocteur, who was a famous playwright at the Cocteau, time. Cocteur, yeah. Co- that's how you pronounce it, sorry. And then also Sanay, that poet. So the three of them mm-hmm. put together this show, this Russian play. And one of the ballerinas was Olga. Right. And he fell in love with Olga, same, you know, both ways. And they got married within a year. Right. And they had a, a child together. Paolo. Paolo. And that was the only legitimate child. Paolo passed away actually yes. at a reasonably young age. Yeah. He wasn't around for long. Yeah. Uh, he died in 1975 and um, his mother was Olga. And they were married till 1953, but that was when she died mm. because he didn't want to get divorced because then he'd have to share half his estate. <laughs> That's effectively. But she couldn't live with him anymore. So she, she took Paolo and she left. Okay. And he carried on with a whole lot of different relationships. The one lady died. That was very, very sad. He, he loved her a lot. That was Maria. Maria, Maria Eva. Yeah. And then he had his second marriage with Jacqueline, which Jacqueline was the last lady to be in his life right until his death. Jacqueline Rock. Jacqueline Rock. And she killed herself 13 years after his death. She was an alcoholic and she was devastated when he died. And that was his last marriage. She also, Jacqueline Rock, she prevented uh, two of his kids from coming to his funeral. Correct. 
so she was quite a, a force of nature, and she yeah. had quite a lot of control over the estate. But and, the the, and yeah, and everybody was saying she was out for the money and bit of a dragon, a bit of a dragon, hundred percent. But ultimately, you know, I think there's a good story here in that the children they were four at the time of his death, but just and within two years, Paula died. But the other three were seriously involved in in looking after his legacy, and they became extremely rich. Right. He didn't have a will, so there was a lot of legal wranglings backwards and forwards. But ultimately, in the end, you know, they did get inheritance. And like you mentioned, the grandchild is also involved in art. He's an artist herself. One of the daughters went into jewelry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, so, so they, I think they became in their own rights quite successful. And there's still lots of money and there's still legal wranglings going on. And many brands are desperate to get the Picasso name signature some of his work into their own products and they have to pay a premium for it. Mm. So even now his estate continues to generate enormous amounts of money. By the way, Picasso's most expensive painting ever sold is also the most expensive painting ever sold in the art world. And in 2015, the women of Algiers version or sold at an auction in New York for 179 million, 365,000 dollars. That's just, and it's somebody that painted the last century. It wasn't painted like in a, no. at the time of William, you know. Phenomenal. <laughs> it's just incredible. I Absolutely mean, just, phenomenal. That's just, that is incredible. There was also some interesting things during his life, such as, you know, he, his apartments that he rented in Paris, often they were full of paint in that. And one of the landlord at the time said, you need to come back and repaint this whole place. And he would say, what a stupid idiot. He could have just framed that and made millions. <laughs> <laughs> so he really, he, he knew what his talent was. He wasn't shy to talk about it. It's interesting. During the Nazi occupation, his art was not liked by the Nazis. No, 100% when, not. Remember when they took over in France, he was basically told not to paint and mm-hmm. he wasn't allowed to exhibit because people like Hitler and Goering had said, your art is degenerate. Mm-hmm. They didn't like modern art at all. But there were lots of Nazis who realized that he was a brilliant artist and that they could make lots of money and they would do him favors like they would you know give him exceptions that during the occupation no one else had hoping that he would reward them with a painting or something he never did Mm. he used to give them a postcard which maybe he'd sign and that was it yeah so yeah he played that really cool eh? (laughs) yeah because now in the first world war a lot of his his contemporaries his, his good friends poets artists they had to go to war yeah and he didn't actually have to go to war. So he was young and fit in right. the First World War. And then a lot of people would scream at him, coward, coward, because this is young man walking around Paris where all the other men have gone to war. Mm-hmm. But in the Second World War, he initially when it started and when the, the Nazis came and occupied Paris, he went down to the coast. But then he came back. He went into Paris and they really, his reputation was massively enhanced, you know, standing up for the, against the Nazis during that period. But, you know, truth be told, he was so famous and he had quite a lot of, like you said, inside help that I think he was okay. During the war, he did a lot of quite critical stuff of both his own government and of the Nazi occupation. And then afterwards, Franco. One of his famous paintings. Um, La Guernica. Yes, probably the most famous paintings. Certainly one of them. Yes. And, and there's a bull and there's a horse, but it's also about his attitude towards the poor. And he very much mingled with society's low life in order to represent them as well as he possibly could in his art, you know, circus performers Mm. and prostitutes and homeless people and that kind of thing. So he was by no means snooty about his art. Yeah, agreed, 100%. 
he did this huge sculpture in Chicago. And they had a very powerful mayor at the time. It was a big politician that bought the sculpture. And nobody knew what it was. Was it a seal with a man body? Was it a buffalo? With yeah. a, and you couldn't understand. And, and nobody could really say what it meant. All it was that, let's just meet at the statue. It became famous. Mm. But there was one art critic that understood it because they said, if you look at the eyes and you look at the demeanor, it's every time somebody's downtrodden, every time they take more away from the poor, and it talks very much about getting what Picasso was really like. Well, he also used his eyes as an autobiography, and he famously said that he invented a new style every time he fell in love with a new woman. And he had a habit of dating his works, and he explained that he wants to leave to posterity a documentation that will be as complete as possible. That's why I put a date on everything I do. And that's also why his catalog is so well collected and collated because we can actually date each period we can figure out out of the thousands of pictures he did and paintings and sculptures and all the rest all of them had a date on them pretty amazing he was he was keeping track of his life yeah. as it went by another thing was on growing up he was he, he had a quite a snappy temper hmm. he really didn't believe in his teachers mm -hmm. and later on in life he, he would walk around with the, the story was he'd walk around with a pistol that he loaded with blanks and then he would use it to fire people that he didn't like. So, <laughs> so they, anybody that was boring or, or somebody, anybody that insulted Shazan, who was a French artist and impressionist. Oh, Cezanne. Yeah. Cezanne, because he was a massive fan of Paul oh, Cezanne's okay. work. And Cezanne is also the artist I was referring to earlier when he bought that chateau in the mountains. He actually called up his friend and he said, I've bought Cezanne's mountain. He was probably unstable, like any genius. Genius and madness live on the same street mm. and there's no doubt that the guy had severe sadism depression mm. he had a terrible relationship with most of the women in his life certainly with his children as well and his legacy while it is not perfect is typical of people who break the mold it's going to be messy and complex and not everybody's going to like it but undoubtedly one of the people who's made the biggest impression, not only on art, but on humanity. Indeed. I found him incredibly interesting. It was a pleasure looking into Pablo Picasso. Yeah, now I just want to see more and more of his work. Yes. And there's lots to see. So get on the internet if you, if you can't actually get to these art galleries and museums. And have a look at the paintings that have fetched these unbelievable prices and that belong both to private individuals and to galleries all over the world and are held as people's most treasured possessions you know who's the picasso going to is what rich kids yeah, fight exactly 100 because <laughs> it's <laughs> worth more than the house <laughs> it's worth more than than anything yeah, the exactly. business <laughs> phenomenal so there he is pablo picasso undoubtedly one of the most interesting people i've encountered in all these episodes of blind history Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He also vacillated in the very beginning from being sort of a moderate to becoming an extreme leftist and a big communist supporter. I mean, he, 
He drew portraits of Stalin. He got the Lenin Prize eventually. He was hugely controversial. He was investigated by the, the CIA and the FBI for being a, a communist sympathizer in Europe and uh, joined the French Communist Party in the last few years of his life. So politically, not shy either. 